0: It's only a kick, a jump, a block, it's only a serve, it's only a tackle, a run, it's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Hey everybody, Nate Hale here. It's my favorite time of year. But even though I know this year has been hard on a lot of us, and Halloween isn't going to be quite like it was in years past, I still want to celebrate by offering you a special Halloween treat. No tricks, I promise. So here, just for you, I wanted to share with you a couple of mini-stories which you may never have heard before. So sit back, relax, dim the lights, and enjoy. Story 1. The Wolf Girl Everyone always said that Emily took after her father. This wasn't exactly a compliment either, because even from an early age, people noticed the little girl's unusual appearance. She had thick black eyebrows, and unsightly hair that always seemed to stick out and grow wild no matter how much brushing they did. Emily had always been an odd child, quiet and reserved in a way that was slightly unnerving. When other children her age were running around playing, Emily always seemed to hang back and just watch them from the distance. Her full name was Emily Isabel Burt, and she was born in 1841, the youngest child of a wealthy family in what is now the town of Woodland, Georgia. After Emily's father died when she was still young, he left his entire estate to Emily's mother. It was shortly after that Mildred Owen Burt decided to ship all her children off to boarding school in Europe, freeing herself up to begin spending her days hanging out with the area's other socialites. Emily eventually returned home after spending some time abroad. By now, the socially awkward little girl had grown into a socially awkward teenager. Her time in Europe hadn't done much to help her disposition either. In fact, her behavior struck most people as even stranger than usual. She looked sickly, for one thing, pale with skin like milk and a vacant stare that always seemed to be looking at something a million miles away. She complained to her mother that she wasn't able to sleep at night. The woods were too loud, and her bed felt too uncomfortable, the sheets itching furiously against her skin. Over time, Mildred Burt began to realize that Emily had begun sneaking out to the nearby forest in the middle of the night. Although when she confronted her daughter about this, Emily claimed to have no memory of her midnight strolls. Mildred decided to write the entire matter off as a symptom of puberty. Her daughter's body was changing, simple as that. Some girls just change differently is all. It was around the same time that local farmers began reporting troubles of their own. It seemed that a pack of wolves must have moved into the area, because more and more livestock was turning up ripped to shreds in the fields around town. Outside predators were always a threat to domestic farm animals, but lately things had been ramping up more than anyone could recall. It didn't seem like a single morning went by without one of the local farmers discovering a sheep or a cow's bloody carcass splattered across a field. Wolves are typically nocturnal hunters, the farmers began forming nightly hunting parties in order to catch the wolves and wipe them out. But despite finding large wolf tracks throughout the woods, they were never able to track the creature back to its den. Thus, the killings continued. There was one resident in particular who came up with an idea why they were unable to catch the wolf that was causing so much trouble. This came from an old recluse who hailed from somewhere in Eastern Europe, And when he stood up at one of the town meetings and told them what he believed was killing their animals at night, nobody laughed or called him crazy. This was no ordinary wolf, he said. It was in fact a creature known as laluguru, better known as a werewolf. By now the farmers were growing desperate, so they asked the old man for his advice on what they could do. He suggested that they wait to hunt the creature down until the night of the next full moon. In the meantime, they should collect together every scrap of silver they could get their hands on and melt it all down to make bullets. With no other options and a growing pile of dead animals, the farmers all agreed they had no other choice. A few weeks later, the moon shone full and bright overhead, and the hunt was on. The men all gathered together with their hunting rifles, each loaded with silver bullets, and headed out into the woods. They first found a set of massive paw prints that led them to a field where they saw an enormous frightening shape in the distance. It was a gigantic wolf silhouetted by moonlight. This was bigger than any wolf any of them had ever seen before. But even beyond that was something else even more frightening. This particular wolf was standing upright on two legs. Before they could get too close, the monster's ears twitched as it detected them. It turned its head in their direction, just as the group of hunters all opened fire. The creature let off a horrific scream, then bolted away. They rushed to where the creature had been standing just moments before, but now it was gone. The creature had left a trail of blood behind. Clearly, they had hit it with at least some of their shots. The sound of gunshots startled Mildred Owen Burt awake. Who on earth could be hunting at this hour of the night? She went to check on her children, only to discover that Emily's bed was empty. She thought of the hunters firing guns in the dark, and realized that Emily might be in danger if she went off on one of her midnight hikes. Mildred lit a lantern and headed off into the woods. There she found Emily, and just as she feared, her daughter was injured. The worst of the wounds was a bullet hole clean through the palm of Emily's hand. Mildred fetched the local doctor to patch her daughter up. The following day, word reached Mildred about the creature the men had been hunting. Suddenly, Mildred began to look at her daughter in a different light. She thought of Emily's odd hair growth, her midnight strolls, and lately, did Emily's teeth appear more pointed than usual? Yes, she thought, they did. Rumors say that Mildred Burt shipped Emily back off to Europe to come under the care of a doctor in Paris who specialized in curing lycanthropy. According to legend, the animal mutilations all stopped after Emily left town. Years later, Emily Isabel Burt returned to Georgia a changed woman. She was still oddly quiet and reserved, but she no longer appeared to have the urge to wander the woods at night. She lived the remainder of her life as a successful businesswoman and landlord before dying in 1911 at age 70. Now, of course, there's no definitive proof that Emily Isabel Burt was an actual werewolf. In fact, there are some historians who claim there is very little evidence to substantiate much of this story. And yet, there really was an Emily Isabel Burt, and her body is buried in a private cemetery near Woodland. If you're ever in the neighborhood, you can go ask for permission to visit the grave and make up your own mind. I just wouldn't do so on the night of a full moon if I were you. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. Story 2. The Hot Shot. You could say Deke Slayton was a man who spent his entire life with his head in the clouds. During World War II, he became a decorated combat pilot flying missions over Europe and Japan, then later on to become one of America's first astronauts and test pilots. Deke dedicated his life to trying to go faster and fly higher. Nothing could stop Deke Slayton from taking to the skies. Some say, not even death. He was born Donald Kent Slayton in Sparta, Wisconsin in 1924. He first got his wings in April 1943 when he flew dozens of combat missions over Europe and Japan in World War II. Following his first stint in the military, he got a job at Boeing, studying aeronautical engineering. He did that for two years before joining the Minnesota Air Guard in 1951. From there, he joined the U.S. Air Force Test Pilot School, where he learned to fly the fastest jets the military had to offer. But Deke always had his sights set on the next horizon, the next big opportunity to fly where no one had ever gone before. In 1959, Deke got his big chance. That was the year he was selected for NASA's Mercury program. The Mercury program was one of the stepping stones that would lead to NASA's ultimate goal of putting a man on the moon. Mercury's mission was to prove that humans could function in zero gravity. Deke was only one of seven men chosen for the program. He was originally assigned to the first orbital mission, but at the last minute he was pulled from that flight and reassigned to the second mission instead. But because he'd been reassigned, he was forced to undergo another round of physical examinations. And that's when an Air Force physician expressed his concerns about a slight fluctuation in Deke's heart rate. As a result, NASA scrubbed Deke from the Mercury mission entirely. He insisted he was healthy as a horse and totally ready for the mission. But nothing he could say or do could convince NASA to change their decision. With insult to injury, Deke had his flight status revoked, and for a time, he remained grounded. But Deke refused to let this setback keep him down. Following his reassignment, in 1962, Deke became the assistant director of flight operations for NASA, before being promoted to the full directorship four years later. But although his career was getting back on track, the one thing Deke dreamed of more than anything at all was getting back up in the air. He vowed to get in shape and do everything he could to regain his flight status. In March 1972, he underwent a new set of physical exams which he passed with flying colors. And after that, his flight status was reinstated. The first thing Deke did to celebrate was take a T-38 training jet up in the air and show off by performing some hot dog aerobatics over Ellington Air Force Base in Texas. Then in 1975, Deke's dream of going into outer space finally came true, when he became the captain of the crew of the Apollo-Soyuz test project. The Apollo crew launched into space on July 15, 1975. Deke and his crew spent nine days in space docking with the Russian Soyuz spacecraft for 44 hours. It was the crowning achievement of his flight career. After Deke returned to Earth, he stayed on with NASA, moving into an administrative position where he helped build the first space shuttle. Deke Slayton finally retired from NASA in February 1982. But the sky was Deke's home. And even though he retired, he refused to keep his feet planted on the ground for too long. He bought a powerful Formula One racing plane, and he loved to take it up in the air and show off his aerobatic skills. Deke hadn't lost a step. He could still make a plane dance through the air, taking it higher, faster, looping it through the sky with the greatest of ease. And that's exactly what got him in trouble on June 13th, 1993. John Wayne Airport is a busy transportation hub in Orange County, California, just south of Los Angeles. It was the airport people used who lived in many of the outlying communities who didn't want to deal with the mass chaos at LAX. In 2012 alone, more than 8 million air travelers passed through John Wayne's gates. Hundreds of private pilots kept their planes there as well. All of which is to say that at 7.55 a.m. on June 13th, there were many witnesses who saw and heard a noisy red Formula One racing plane go buzzing over the airport. It was impossible to miss. Wherever the hotshot was behind the stick, he had some serious skills in the cockpit. The pilot spent the better part of an hour doing a bunch of crazy aerobatic loops and other stunts. This managed to seriously alarm many of the airport personnel on the ground. The plane was loud, for one thing, with its massive propeller setting off three airport-area noise monitors. The pilot hadn't filed a proper flight plan, and he didn't respond to any of their hails either on the radio. Whoever he was and whatever he thought he was doing, his hot-dogging presented a major flight risk to some of the commercial planes taking off. But then, after several minutes, the pilot's little stunt show finally ended. The last anyone saw of the little red plane was it zooming off into some clouds, disappearing from sight. But before the plane zoomed off, several witnesses managed to take down the huge registration numbers painted on the plane's side, N21X, and reported the incident to the Federal Aviation Administration. It didn't take long for the FAA to trace the airplane as belonging to one Deke Slayton, war hero, former NASA official, and former Apollo astronaut. The FAA fired off a letter of citation to Deke Slayton's home on June 28th but the response they received back wasn't at all what they were expecting. The person who responded to their letter of reprimand was Bobby Slayton, Deke's wife. She admitted that her husband did own a red Formula One racing plane, and that the plane did indeed have the registration number N21X. Her husband loved that plane dearly, and he did love to show off his aerobatic skills as well. But she also informed the FAA in no uncertain terms, that it was impossible for Deke to have been flying his plane over John Wayne Airport in California on June 13, 1993. For one thing, Deke's family had donated the plane to a Texas Air Museum several months earlier, and it was currently sitting in the museum on display with the engine removed. But that wasn't the only problem, you see. On June 13, 1993, Deke Slayton died of terminal brain cancer in Texas at 3.22 a.m., just a few hours before his red Formula One racing plane was sighted flying over John Wayne Airport at 7.55 a.m. Thanks again for listening, everyone. I hope everyone has a safe, spooky, and socially distant Halloween. And I hope you'll be back next week for our regularly scheduled show. Happy Halloween!